0: Mark chapter 14. You know, we, we come now or today to what is called as the passion narratives. Uh, uh, the section we have in front of us specifically, Mark chapter 14 and then 15, uh, document for us climaxes of some of the themes that Mark has already introduced to us. So for example, in chapter 1 he tells us uh, this gospel is about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Of man the son of God Um, and then we see a climax of that as we see a woman worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ Uh, Mark also introduces to us the theme of conflict with authority right in the first few chapters he talks about how the authorities are against what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing and we'll find uh, a climaxing of that as they plan to murder the son of man But there's also another mention. Remember when the first time the list of the uh, disciples is mentioned, Judas is actually introduced as one who would betray him. And we find uh, uh, that happening in this particular portion of the scriptures as well. Uh, 37% of Mark deals just with the passion narratives. And so obviously this is of great importance as it will show us that the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the text we will look at is Mark chapter 14, verse 1 to 11. Remember, uh, if you remember in the past, this is uh, another of the Markan sandwiches uh, that we've been learning about, and he has many of them. Uh, What I mean by sandwich is there's at least three events or three stories that Mark mentions like a bookend, and then there's one that is in the middle, and the one that is in the middle actually um, enhances the, the effect or the impact of what Mark is sharing. And so Mark doesn't always follow chronological order, but he follows a certain order that enhances the story that is in the middle. And we'll, we'll see that. Let's read the chapter together, at least the first 11 verses, and then we'll find out what Mark is doing. Now the Passover and the unleavened, unleavened bread were two days away. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii denarii, and the money given to the poor, and they were scolding her. But Jesus said to her, Let her alone. Said rather, Let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish you can do good to them, But you do not always have me. She has done what she could and she has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money and he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. If you look at that story, the first two verses actually give us a glimpse of the evil plot that the chief priests, the scribes and the elders were involved in, in trying to get rid of Jesus. And the last two verses, verse 10 and 11, come back to the same theme regarding the plot to kill Jesus with added information regarding the plan to betray Jesus by one of his disciples. And couched between these two stories or these two accounts of evil scheming to get rid of an innocent man is a beautiful story that takes place most likely on the Saturday of the prior week of a woman disciple of Jesus who leaves us an example of what worship, extravagant worship of Jesus involves. Now why does Mark break the chronology that way? Well, it's a literary device to give prominence to one event. It's highlighting an event, one event in the middle. That is the woman's worship of Jesus Christ. Um, someone has said it's like the oasis in the middle of a desert. Uh, it's, it's like a rose that is surrounded by thorns. What enhances the beauty of the rose and the oasis is that it is surrounded by trouble. It is surrounded by thorns in the roses case the more you see evil and sin in these 11 verses or the four verses two at the beginning and two at the end the greater you will value the worship that the woman offers and so let's look look at the text I've titled our lesson for today the kind of worship Jesus values the kind of worship Jesus values I have three things that I want to share with you from the text based on the three events. One is The first one is the plot to murder the Son of Man. Secondly, the preeminent example of the worship of the Son of Man. And then finally, the plan to betray the Son of Man. So let's begin with considering the plot to murder the Son of Man. Notice with me, first of all, the period. Mark begins the passage by telling us that where we are in relationship to the week, the last week of Jesus. Uh, he says the Passover and the unleavened bread were two days away. Uh, Thursday is when they get together for the Passover meal. So this is a day before Thursday. So we are now on Wednesday. There's not much teaching recorded of this particular day of the last week of our Lord. Uh, the Passover that is mentioned was, as we know, an annual Jewish Feast that celebrated at the time when the Lord passed over the homes of the Hebrews on the night when all of the firstborn sons of the Egyptians were killed. Exodus chapter 12. You know, the Israelites were given detailed instructions on what to do at at the Passover. Uh, They were to take a spotless and unblemished lamb uh, and that was to be sacrificed, sacrificed. And the blood of that lamb was then to be put on the doorpost of the house. Uh, The lamb had to be slain on the 14th day of Nisan, which is the first month in the Jewish calendar. And the Passover meal was then to be eaten that evening between sundown and and midnight. Uh, The houses that had the blood, if you remember, of the lamb were passed over, while those that did not have the blood lost their firstborn that was the Passover but there was also another festival that was celebrated it was called the feast of the unleavened bread it followed the Passover meal and that feast lasted for seven days what was that feast about well it was the feast that marked the celebration of the exodus from Egypt to the promised land and so the two feasts that is Passover and the unleavened bread were closely connected uh, And many times it it was so closely connected that the term is used, uh, Passover is used to also describe the unleavened bread feast as well. That's how close they were. So here Mark mentions the Passover and the unleavened bread were two days away. Then he gives us information about who the people were. Who were the people seeking to murder the Son of Man? Mark mentions that there were chief priests and scribes that were involved in the plan. Who were the chief priests? They were a group of men, uh, which was made up of current and former high priests, and people that were closely associated with them. Caiaphas was the current high priest, and Annas, his father-in-law, was the former high priest. And they made up that particular group. Then there were the scribes. Uh, These were not only people who copied down the law as their title states, but these were also people who were experts in the law. The whole Sanhedrin in that sense is involved, so the scribes and the chief priests. Uh, Mark doesn't mention it here, but in Matthew's account, Matthew mentions also that elders were involved in the plan. The elders were the patriarchs of the powerful and influential families, and they were involved in this plan to murder the Son of Man. The group then included the religious elite of their times. Now, how do we have this information? Well, we know at least two individuals who made up, uh, who were a part of the Sanhedrin. Uh, remember, it, one was Nicodemus, um, and there was another individual that also made up that became a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have information from people who were right there when these meetings were taking place. Now, the leaders were seeking to arrest him. The word seeking there uh, is in, in grammatical terms, in, in the imperfect tense. What that means is they were constantly seeking opportunities to capture him and to kill him. It was not a one-time thing. They made many efforts to capture and to kill him. Now, just stop and think for a moment about that. Uh, these were the religious leaders of Israel. And they were not only planning a murder, but they were planning the murder of a man who was without guilt. In other words, they were planning to murder an innocent man. Uh, Jesus, our Lord, died for something he did not do. They wanted to kill him in stealth. But Stealth? Wh- wh- why would they want to kill him in stealth? At the end of verse 1, it tells us that, notice, thirdly, the purpose. The purpose. The reason was that it was difficult to find Jesus when there was no crowd around him. If they did this during the festival, which is the Passover and the unleavened bread, then because of the number of people that were there, according to some estimates, there were more than a million. Josephus actually in his record tells us that uh, typically there were about three million people that showed up for these things, these events. There was a possibility that things would get out of hand and there would be a riot. Now, if there was a riot, then whatever freedom these religious leaders enjoyed under the Roman rule, that would be taken away from them if there was a riot. Now, why would there be a riot? There would be a riot because during these times, a nationalistic kind of fervor ran rampant um, because Jews from all over the world came together. Remember, they they had their own kingdom before God... Um, God sent them into exile, and for more than 500 years, they were under a foreign rule. They're under a foreign rule even now with the Romans. And so when they came together for festivals, the sense of nationalism was, was quite high. Uh, this is also why Romans deployed a larger number of troops during, uh, during uh, Passover and, and the unleavened bread. Uh, the best option for the leaders then was to wait until the feast was over, and wait for the crowds to head back to their towns and places and then look for an opportune time to capture and to kill him. They did not want him captured and killed during the 10 days of the festival for their own reasons. What, what is the lesson that we can learn as we look at this plot to murder the son of man? Well it says here not during the festival but God says during the festival. No plan of God then can be thwarted. God had his timing and in his timing Jesus, his son, would be murdered during the festival. On the day that lambs were killed for sacrifice, his son, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, would be killed as well. God's plan can never be thwarted. As a believer, I hope that that gives us a sense of comfort and and strength and the fact that we can rest in this God. But it's also a great reminder that Jesus is one that is without sin. Here, they are planning to murder the son of man who is without guilt and without sin, an innocent man. The words that our pastor quoted in the morning, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we, we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus, our Lord, was one without sin. But not only that, thirdly, we learn that Jesus willingly died, and I want to make it even personal, for me. Jesus died for me. He, He knew, remember there were at least three times before that he has told his disciples that he was going to go to Jerusalem, he was going to be captured, he was going to suffer, he was going to be killed and on the third day he was going to rise again knowing all of those things he still headed towards jerusalem john 13 says now before the feast of the passover jesus knowing that his hour had come that he would depart out of this world to the father having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end our lord willingly went ahead with the sacrifice with his sacrifice for you and for First of all, then the plot to murder Jesus. After telling us what happened on Wednesday, Mark now takes us back to an event that took place on the Saturday. How do we know that? Well, in John chapter one, uh, 12, which is a parallel account to this one, John actually writes six days before the Passover. and So that's how we know that it was the Saturday evening. Remember, Sunday is the Palm Sunday, but this event happens on saturday evening we come to the second the preeminent example of the worship of the son of man let's look first of all at the setting of the worship mark begins the passage by telling us that jesus was in bethany he was there with his disciples uh, piecing together the text from other gospels Uh, this again would have been saturday of the prior uh, prior to the last week just in your minds imagine we were last week on mount olivet On the other side of Mount Olivet, not on the side of Jerusalem, on the other side, which is the eastern side of Mount Olivet, is Bethany. And so that's where Jesus is. Jesus is, uh, typically when he went there, he visited the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Lazarus, as you remember, was raised from the dead a few weeks back before this event takes place. Mark tells us that they were not at that home But they were at the home of Simon the leper, verse 3. Simon the leper. The truth is Simon is not a leper anymore, otherwise they would not have gathered at his home. Presumably then, Jesus had healed Simon and this gathering perhaps was in celebration of that healing. Can't be very sure, but the fact that they're gathering there tells us that Simon has been healed. Also, uh, this individual is perhaps a rich individual. He has a home large enough to accommodate at least 20 to 25 individuals we know that Simon was there we know Mary Martha and Lazarus are there and we know that our Lord's 12 disciples are there and perhaps a few other individuals from the house are there too so it's a large house this is a rich individual they were reclining, is what mark tells us uh, which is a typical first-century Middle Eastern way of eating Uh, dinner was typically a relaxed meal And there was no rush like we are now used to in the 21st century. Uh, And in such a setting, a woman comes with an alabaster vial of a very costly perfume of pure nard. It's busy, there's a lot of people, but there's one woman that comes with nard, it's a perfume. Now, Matthew and Mark actually don't mention the name of the woman. But John in his gospel tells us that this was Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Why don't Matthew and Mark mention her name? Perhaps when Matthew and Mark wrote the gospels, uh, Mary was still alive. And perhaps they wanted to protect her identity. But John wrote his gospel at the end of that first century, somewhere in the 90s AD. And by that time, perhaps Mary would have died. And so he had no issue identifying this individual is it is Mary notice what she does in verse 3 she has an alabaster vial of very costly perfume alabaster is basically a mineral a rock it's very translucent in in nature and it was used to store perfumes Uh, it's like it's like a marble but more translucent than than a marble so that was the container the alabaster container These containers usually had long necks, like the ones that you might find even in perfume bottles for today. And what this vial contained was perfume or pure nard. Uh, This was, uh, that is, it was made from nard, which is an uh, aromatic kind of oil that was extracted from trees that were found in the Himalayan ranges, which is uh, a part of northern India. And so, usually a few drops of this oil, we are told, um, uh, was used for special occasions and the smell remained or the odor remained for a long time. You can Imagine this is Saturday and the garments that were distributed or the lots that were put for Jesus' garments would still have this smell of the nard that Mary used. What Mary actually does for Jesus was quite unheard of. She breaks the vial, she pours all of the contents of the vial over the head of Jesus. In other words, Mary gave it her all. Uh, She was worshipping the Lord Jesus Christ. Mary was completely dedicated and committed to worshipping Jesus Christ, her Lord. There was no holding back, there was no keeping a portion for herself, like we find with many other stories, uh, there, was no, there were no half measures in her dedication and in her commitment to the Lord. Now, if you're a true worshipper of Jesus, and you were at this time witnessing, the, witnessing this, you would have been highly encouraged to see what was going on. When the Lord is worshipped in this way, he ought to be worshipped this way, regardless of whichever part of the world that he is worshipped, If you were to go to another part of the world and he's worshipped in this way, uh, your hearts would resonate and be encouraged because we're worshipping the same Lord. But if it's not an authentic disciple, not a true worshipper, then he or she will always find reasons to be critical of someone who truly is an authentic worshipper of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, sure enough, we have some people who are not happy. Secondly, we see the issue with the worshipper, verse 4 and verse 5. Now Mark does not tell us who it is, but John tells us that it was Judas who actually was very indignant. He was utterly displeased. He was angry. And his indignance and his anger actually rubbed off on some of the other disciples as well. Uh, They wanted others to perceive of this incident as something that was unfair and, and an utter waste. But you might say, well, why is it an utter waste? Well, by showing how much it cost and what could have been done with the money once it was used for that particular reason. Notice verse 5. It's Judas who says, For this perfume might have been sold for 300 denarii. Or denarii. Now, one denarius um, was a day's wage. So this was about a year's salary worth. So That was a huge amount for someone who was living on daily wages. And what plans does Judas have to do with the money that he might get from selling this nard? Well, at least for the audience, he says, he would like to have sold the perfume and given the money to the poor. Now, not only were the disciples indignant, they now turned that anger uh, uh, into directly attacking the particular woman. Notice at the end of verse 5, and they were scolding, they were scolding her. R.C. Sproul, in his commentary on this section, writes, the term sharply, which is used in New Kingdom's version, or scolding, is a vast understatement in the English language. In a bullfight, when the matador taunts the bull, the bull paws the ground and his nostrils flare in anger. That is the image used here. Uh, These people were so angry with Mary for wasting the content or the ointment, he goes on to say, that their nostrils were flaring in their criticism. That's how angry they were at this woman. But was Judas really concerned about the poor? Well, Mark doesn't mention it here, but John tells us that Judas really did not care about the poor, but he was saying this because he was a thief, he was the treasurer of the group, and he used to pilfer what was in the money box. Judas wanted to siphon some money off for his own pleasure. And so their anger and fury towards her blinded them to see a life that is completely dedicated and committed to Jesus Christ. Uh, The attitude that they should have shown as his disciples is shown actually by a woman disciple of our Lord. What a model of devotion and commitment. What does our Lord have to say about such individuals who are not only outwardly concerned about the poor but don't really care for them. What does our Lord have to say about people who are more concerned about the poor than about worshipping him? Notice verse 6 to verse 9 as we thirdly consider the defense of the worshipper. Now being a woman in the first century was difficult in itself. To be attacked openly by the disciples of Jesus was utterly humiliating and mortifying. Notice Our Lord comes to her defense. It's the Lord himself, the very object of her worship. There are at least three things that our Lord does as he defends this woman. First of all, we see he prohibits his disciples from engaging with Mary. Jesus' first response to his disciples who are indignant at this woman is a command to to leave her alone and not to bother her. Let her alone. Let her be. Why do you bother her? But there's another thing that he does. He praises Mary for her act of worship. Notice what he says. Far from rejecting her worship of him or criticizing her for her act of worship, Jesus actually commends her for her act. He does at least two things. First of all, he highlights the priority of worship. Notice verse 6. He singles out worship at the end as a good deed she has done a good deed to me what she has done is is good to be involved in worshiping our lord is to be involved in doing a good deed see when we come together to worship our lord as a corporate body the worship team are not performers and you're not the audience Uh, we are all worshipers and god is the audience and we worship for an audience of one, and that one is God. Jesus here is highlighting the priority of worship. He says, the poor you will always uh, be with you, verse 7. And whenever you wish, you can do good to them. Now for someone who does not know the Lord well, you can interpret this as Jesus not caring for the poor. But that is far from the truth. Remember the story of the rich young ruler? which we came across earlier in Mark chapter 10, comes and asks him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit uh, eternal life? Do you remember our Lord's response at the end of that passage? In verse 21, our Lord tells him, Looking to him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come then, follow me. Not only that, But at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord says, So when you give to the poor, it's not when you, it's not if you give to the poor, there is an assumption that you will give to the poor. No, our Lord cares for the poor. But here, he highlights the priority of worship. The poor will always be there with you, but right now, the priority is to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only that, he highlights the purpose of worship. Verse 8, the second thing he does is he highlights why we worship. He begins by saying that she has done what she could. what What has she done? Notice at the end of verse 8, she has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. The purpose of her worship is to acknowledge his impending death on her behalf. You see, our worship of God is intimately connected with what he has done for us in his life, in his death, in his burial, and his and in his resurrection. Therefore, there can be no true worship without acknowledging who God is and what He has done for us in sending His Son to die for us on the cross. We are able to worship the only living God through the death of His Son. But this is not only an acknowledgment of worship. There is also a display of gratitude on behalf of Mary isn't there John tells us that she poured the oil and then she wiped him with with her hair now oh, that should remind you of another story that takes place in, uh, in, in Luke's Gospel where there is a sinner in the home of a Pharisee Luke chapter 7 and Jesus highlights what he what she has done uh, by telling us that uh, that she has given her all and she's forgiven much because she has, shown, uh, she has shown much love because she's forgiven much. Mark chapter 7, verse 37 and 38. Uh, this woman is not even named. She's just mentioned as a sinner. And uh, Mary probably has heard about her story. Worship to her then is not just acknowledging who God is, but it is to go all out in a display of gratitude towards this God purpose of worship thirdly and finally our Lord prophesizes about the global impact of Mary's act notice verse 9 of chapter 14 truly I say to you wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her Jesus prophesizes the fact that wherever the gospel is shared they're going to talk about this woman One of the marks of a prophet, Deuteronomy 18, is that he speaks in the name of the Lord and what he says will come true. If it doesn't come true, he's not a prophet of God. In other words, the truthfulness of a prophet was dependent on the veracity of his statements. If it doesn't come true, he is not a prophet. Now some prophecies of our Lord, such as his impending suffering and death, came true in the immediate next few days and some long after his ascension, But notice here, he says, wherever the gospel is preached, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. John MacArthur writes on this, Though two millennia have passed, the testimony of Mary's sacrificial worship still stands as a perpetual memorial of her love for Christ. Her heartfelt gesture, looking to the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ, provides a compelling example of the kind of selfless, extravagant praise that honors the Savior. Wherever the gospel is preached this woman and what she has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. The fact that we're talking about her today is a testimony to the fact that this prophecy has come true 2000 plus years. What are some lessons that we can draw as we think of this as the the crux of the, the lesson that our Lord is teaching here Well, first of all, Jesus receives worship because Jesus is God. You see, if Jesus was merely a man and not God, knowing the Jewish society and culture and history, he would have immediately rejected the worship that this woman was offering to him. After all, Jews knew that to claim to be equal to God or to claim to be God was blasphemous and that was something that was punishable by death. But Jesus not only acknowledges what this woman has done for him, but also approves of her act. There are a few times in the book of Revelation where angels are worshipped and they say, no, don't, don't worship us. But Jesus doesn't do that here. Jesus receives worship from Mary because Jesus is, is God. Claim, it, it points to his G, uh, divinity. Jesus was, has not only claimed to be God, but he also accepts worship which only God does. And so if we take anything from this, it is that Jesus is God. But not only that, secondly, we also learn that Jesus values authentic worship. Let me make it even personal. Jesus values authentic worshipper. He clearly defends Mary for her act. So you might ask, who is an authentic worshipper? Well, if you were to look at Mary's story, we can draw so many things from this. Uh, She is one who is a redeemed sinner. Uh, She is one who is a grateful sinner. Uh, In fact, the uh, interesting thing about Mary is whenever we, we see her, she comes to us with a posture of worship. The first time we meet her is at the feet of Jesus. Where Martha is working, she is at the feet of Jesus learning from him. The second time we see her is at the resurrection of her brother Lazarus. She comes and falls at the feet of Jesus. Uh, This is the third time that we meet her. She is at the feet of Jesus. She's a grateful sinner. We also learn from Mary that her heart is motivated only by love for Christ. Uh, That's all that she is motivated by. She's also one who seeks to please and glorify Christ in everything. Perfectly? No. No. Not perfectly, but in, in directionally, with the inclination of her heart. Her desire is to please and glorify Christ in everything. Uh, also, an authentic worshipper is one who leaves no stone unturned to see Christ glorified. No stone unturned to see Christ glorified. An authentic worshipper is also one who is willing to suffer for him. Imagine you being a, a woman in the culture and the and the society that she was in to face the wrath, the scolding of these people who were so close to Jesus. And then finding Jesus coming to her defense. She was willing to suffer for him. But also we find an authentic worshiper is one who is, whose worship is grounded in the cross. Uh, the text tells us that she was anointing him to prepare him for his burial. It is grounded in right theology. She had a right understanding of the cross. We don't know from the text how much she understood, but the fact is that she, she, she did what she did knowing that he was going to die. To die for whom? Just for no one, as, as he thinks about it, but for me personally. While he's going to die for the world, but his death is personal because he's going to die for me. An authentic worshipper also is one who is lavish and humble and not ashamed about what others think. If I can add one more, an authentic worshipper is one who fears God alone. That is the kind of worshipper that Jesus values. We've looked at the plot to murder the Son of Man. We've looked at the preeminent example of worship of the Son of Man. Thirdly, we consider... The plan to betray the Son of Man, verse 10 and verse 11. A story is told of John Anthony Walker in 1967. He walked into the Soviet embassy in Washington, D.C., and he offered to sell information. He was a U.S. Navy communications specialist who for almost two decades, from 1967 to 85, passed classified documents, including Navy code books and reports of movements of ships and submarines, the agents in Soviet Russia. And in return for substantial payments which he felt he needed to repair a troubled marriage and personal finances, he actually regularly f- left photographed uh, and photocopied cryptographic keys, technical manuals, and other material in anon- anonymous locations. Now, at first, he obtained these documents by himself because he was on active duty, but subsequently, he re- recruited a close friend, a brother, and his own son into such a growing spiring that he maintained, even after his retirement from the military. The espionage activities of Walker Spiring were described at the end by some officials as amongst the gravest security breaches in the history of the US Navy. John Walker, or John Anthony Walker. The loss in money, we are told, ran into billions of dollars, and the impact of the breach and betrayal would be felt very for a very very long time. Betrayal, you know the, the name Judas is synonymous with the word betray or betrayal. Who is a betrayer? Someone who betrays is generally a person who is very close to the person, another person or an organization that is being betrayed. He or she has a lot of access to a lot of information that can be confidential in nature. He or she behaves in a way that shows that they're a part of the inner circle, but in reality, their heart is far away from from the cause. They are worse than an enemy. Why? Because at least with an enemy, you know where they stand, not so with a betrayer. They give you the sense that they are loyal to you and that they are committed to you, but in reality, they are self-consumed and they are only focused on what they can benefit from the deal. Notice verse 10 and verse 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this, and promised to give him money, and he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. As we consider the plan to betray the Son of Man, first of all, let's quickly consider the portrait of the betrayer. Notice verse 10 at the initial portion. Who was Judas Iscariot? He was one of the twelve. You see, the religious leaders did not want Jesus to be captured during the festival, but God had other plans, and his plans are always on time. Judas, we are told, is one of the twelve. He was one of the twelve disciples of Jesus, in other words. We don't know exactly how he came to be a disciple of Jesus, but we know that Judas actually was a treasurer of the group. If you have the money... uh, the thought is that you're the most trusted individual in the group. He was not the most trusted individual in the group. He was a dishonest man. Uh, Judas Iscariot was his full name as is mentioned here. Uh, Judas' name in, uh, is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Judah, which roughly means praise or let God be praised or let God be worshipped. That's what Judah or Judas means. And considering his last name, the word Iscariot comes from a Hebrew, Ishkirioth, meaning man of Kiryat." Uh, it's a city in Judea and in modern-day Palestine. The text tells us he's, he was one of the 12 disciples from this particular region. Very unusual because the rest of the disciples were mostly from Galilee. He may have been one of those who expected Jesus to be the kind of Messiah that, uh, that the Jewish leaders were expecting, one who would rescue them from the tyranny of the Romans, but that's not who Jesus was and he came to do. Uh, he thought he was a political Messiah rather than a spiritual one. Uh, perhaps Mary's anointing then, an event that takes place on Saturday, may have been kind of, kind of the final straw in his decision to do something about his intentions about this political about having a political messiah so what does he do but before we go there we have to remind ourselves of the fact that he's dealing with Jesus Jesus on his part always knew who Judas was and what he would ultimately do John 6:70 tells us that Jesus already knew what Judas's plans were but all happened so that the scripture and God's plan of salvation would be fulfilled just at the time that God had planned that then is Judas one whose name means praise be to God or let God be worshipped what an irony notice secondly the plan to betray Jesus see Judas one of the 12th seems to have read actually and responded to an official notice that came out we're not told here but in John eleven fifty seven, 57 we are told now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he, that is Jesus was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. So apparently there was news out there that if you knew where Jesus was, come and report it to us. And perhaps Judah or Judas saw that, and he takes advantage of that, perhaps wanting to make even some more money than he was already making. But why did they need someone to tell Jesus or uh, tell them where Jesus was? Because, you see, it had become difficult to locate where Jesus was. Also, they wanted to seize him at a time when there was no one around. An insider or an informer or a betrayer, Judah or Judas, would be in the best position to let the authorities know when that time would be. Now, we think of you know lights on the street and we think of so much brightness even in the night time. But that was not the case in first century Israel. And so you needed someone in the inside to tell you where Jesus was. And that's what Judah does. Judah was close to, Judas was close to Jesus. He was in fact, as we talked about, one of the 12 disciples. He would know the inside plans and details of those plans. Just as Johnny Walker did about the Navy. He would know when Jesus would be, where he would be, and where, whether he would be by himself. So as you look at these three events, three stories, Mark, you see, has deliberately inserted the story of the preeminent example of the worship Of the Son of Man in the middle of the plot to kill the Son of Man and the plan to betray the Son of Man he wants to show us as I mentioned earlier what is truly expected from the disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ Uh, if there was anyone who should be worshipping God as he ought to be worshipped it should have been the chief priests and the scribes why because they knew the scriptures they were experts in the scriptures they knew the Messiah was to come they knew that he had to suffer Isaiah 33. They knew that Jesus fit well with all of those descriptions. His words and his actions were in alignment with God's word. Yet, they failed to worship him as they should have worshiped him. Also, if there was anyone who was worshiping God as he ought to be worshipped, it should have been Judas Iscariot. Uh, worship, genuine, authentic worship, should have been a response of a person who sat under the regular teaching of Jesus for over three years. He walked with Jesus. He traveled with Jesus. He may have slept in the same room as Jesus slept as they went from town to town. And if we can use our sanctified imagination, we could even envision multiple times that he may have been alone, just one-on-one with Jesus Christ. This is Judas. But to top it all, his name means let God be worshipped. What an irony that instead of worshipping, he's conniving with the religious leaders and ultimately ended up becoming a renegade disciple, a traitor, a betrayer. David Garland in his commentary writes, This woman's act, that is mentioned in verse 3 to verse 9, this woman's act of extraordinary adoration is sandwiched between extraordinary malice and betrayal. He says there is a paradox here, isn't there? The actions of both these individuals has not been forgotten. One accepts money to betray Jesus and the other gives up money to worship him and prepare him for burial. Mary shows love and devotion. Judas sh- shows hatred and treachery and betrayal. What a difference. What an irony. What are some lessons that we can draw from this passage as we bring our text and our lesson to a close? First of all, appearances can be deceiving. We're to be on our guard. Appearances can be deceiving. If there's one thing we can learn from Judas' life, it is this, that appearances can be deceiving. Like Judas, many uh, uh, so-called Christians will say to our Lord, remember uh, Matthew seven twenty-two and 23, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, in your name cast out demons, in your name perform many miracles, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now Jesus knew all along who was going to betray him, but if you think of the rest of the 11 disciples, they had no inclination as to the motivation of Judas. He was a liar, a deceiver, and a thief. They trusted him. Even when Jesus and the Last Supper gives them the bread and tells him, go do what you were to do, even then the 11 disciples don't understand that Judas is a deceiver. And so as you think of this lesson, you ask yourself, how can you protect yourself against deceivers? Well, for one, I hope that you were there in our morning's lesson at our worship center with Pastor Tom teaching. But How can you be on your guard? The only way is to stick to God's truth, isn't it? Our Lord in his high priestly prayer says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The more you are in God's word, the more it equips you to stand against deceivers and liars. And yet we ought to remember that we are also living in a fallen world. We can do everything and yet not be protected against such people. But we are to remember in those times, even as we learned in a previous lesson, God is in full control of everything that is happening in this world. Stick close to the truth. Be in God's word. But secondly, analyze the motives of your own heart. As you think of Judas and what he did, analyze the motive of your own hearts. We want to guard against wrong motivations to be a part of the people of God. Judas, you see, is an example, a wrong example to us as to what can happen when our heart is never in the right place and not worshipping as we ought to worship the God of the Bible. You see, Judas had everything going for him. He sat under the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ for three years. He observed Jesus' miracles, his healing of the sick, his raising of the dead, his calming the storms, and yet he ended up betraying our Lord. Because he had the wrong motivation to follow the Lord. What, what are some of the wrong motivations that he had? Well, he loved money more than he loved the Lord. He was also a private sinner. He, he stole money. He was different in the public <laughs> with people and different in his private life. He also harbored grieve, greed and envy in his, in his heart. He had worldly sorrow rather than godly sorrow. How do we know that? Because godly sorrow leads to repentance. But Judas' sorrow led not to his repentance but to his death. You see, he was in this for himself, not for Christ. So as we think about it, we want to analyze our own motivations. Thirdly and finally we ought to strive to be an authentic worshipper of God. An authentic worshipper of God. What does that mean as we bring this to a close? I've already mentioned a few things about it, but let me, in closing, mention the kind of worshipper Jesus values. Don't worry about taking them down, we'll have those on the slides. But one who is a redeemed sinner one who has been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ one who is a grateful sinner a grateful for what God has done Uh, that gives us the sense that we ought to be patient with those who are not believers yet because where they are now we were once in the past We're grateful sinners one whose heart is motivated only by love for Christ Uh, do everything You can, as a part of the body of Christ, for the love of Christ alone. You will never be disappointed. One who seeks to please and glorify Christ in everything. Uh, That is, one who leaves no stone unturned to see Christ magnified and glorified. Our lives ought to be ones where we put and keep the spotlight on Jesus Christ and on him alone. One who is willing to suffer for him. One who is worshipped is grounded in the cross, in our Lord's death and his resurrection. One who is lavish and and humble. One who is not ashamed about what others think. One who fears God alone and does not fear man. And can I add one more that's not found in this text, but found in our Lord's account of uh, his meeting with the Samaritan woman. One who worships our Lord in spirit and in truth. Now that is the kind of worshipper our God is seeking. That is the kind of worshipper our Lord values. Let me close our time in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for these wonderful reminders from your word. Uh, thankful for highlighting for us the kind of worship that you value. Lord, we who are Saved by your grace, we are purchased by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We, if there, be, there are to be anyone, who, any people group that are grateful, it ought to be us. And so we are thankful, Lord, for what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we admit many times that our motivations of our heart are not right. Uh, they don't come out of a genuine love for, for you. But Lord, we pray that you would direct and influence the motivations of our heart that we would want to do everything we can only out of a love for for you thank you also for the reminder from not only this particular chapter but from Mark chapter 1 till chapter 16 of the fact that that if we claim your name that we will suffer help us to be ready for that we're thankful for the things that you have given us for the way that you've equipped us for the word that you've given us on which we can stand. Thank you for these reminders once again. Help us truly to be the kind of worshipers that you seek, that you value as we go throughout this day and then throughout this week. Help our goal to see that you are honored and glorified in everything that we do. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.